Good morning. I'm Gary Butler, pastor of Counseling and Family Ministries at Bethel. And it's my privilege this morning to speak to our mothers. My youngest daughter, Ginger, lives in Beijing, China. They don't own a car, and uh, she has had to handle some paperwork to travel back to the States uh, next month. She's pregnant and has two children under three years of age. Here's how she described her day to me last week. I loaded up my kids for a short trip to the Chinese embassy on my bike. I have a child within me. I had a child strapped on my back and another child behind me in the bike seat squeezing me around the waist. When we arrived at the embassy, we navigated three stories of stairs only to discover that the Chinese official was not in. So I loaded up my little ones knowing that I would have to repeat the same acrobatic feat at least three more times. All in a day's work for a mother. But oh, the loyalty of a mother to her children. An elderly woman came to church one day. The usher did not recognize her, but the lady directed the usher to find a seat right up front, in the front row. The usher responded, oh, you don't want to sit up there. Sometimes our pastor can be a little boring. You want to sit at back where you can see the teens passing notes and people falling asleep. There's so much scope for the imagination. No, said the lady, I want to sit right down front, first row, center seat, right under the pulpit. To that, the elderly lady became somewhat indignant and asked the usher, Do you know who I am? No, said the usher, I don't. Well, I'm the pastor's mother. (laughs) To which the usher replied, And do you know who I am? No, said the lady. Good, said the usher. (laughs) For the record, that was not Spike DeWitt. But I've wanted to tell that story for a long time. And here I am preaching on Mother's Day. Now, what we're going to do this morning for just a few moments, I want to have us consider some of the negative mothers from the Old Testament so we can learn some positive principles. And we begin with Athaliah. Athaliah leaves us a legacy of wicked counsel. Second Chronicles 22 says, His mother's name was Athaliah. He also walked in the ways of the house of Ahab, for his mother was his counselor in doing wickedly. Counselor in doing wickedly. Athaliah was the daughter of Ahab and Jezebel. She was half Israelite, half Phoenician, and personified all the evil of her ill-famed parents. She inherited the evil strength of her mother Jezebel and transferred the poison of her father Ahab and his idolatry into the southern kingdom of Judah. Her son Ahaziah only reigned a year and was brutally wounded in battle. I would have to think that Athaliah goes down in the history of Israel as one of the worst mothers of the southern kingdom. So what can we learn 
from Athaliah. Well, obviously, don't counsel your children to do wickedly. But I would imagine that most of the mothers in this room would never intentionally counsel their children to live wickedly, right? But I think it would be good for us to consider in this culture what does it take to raise an Ahaziah. The answer is, don't train him at all. Like most kids in our culture, just let them grow up. And by default, our culture will take over and lead him right down the road of Ahaziah. I need to remind us this morning as parents that we have been charged of God to train up our child in the way he should go. We cannot presume that our sons and daughters will just automatically find the right path. Having said that, I think it would be good for us to place before us the ultimate goal of parenting. It's found in Psalm 78, beginning at verse 5. Actually, Chris read it earlier in the service. Commanded our fathers to teach to their children that the generation might know them, that is God's commands, the children yet unborn, and arise and tell them to their children so that they should set their hope in God. A child setting his hope in God is the ultimate goal of parenting. God wants us to raise a generation which sets their hope in God. In other words, we must, in our relationship to our children, pass our faith to the next generation. If that is true, it would be good for us to think for a few moments about what it takes to pass your faith to your children. I want you to plug in for a moment in Old Testament Israel, Joshua chapter 4, verses 5 through 7. Joshua said to them, Take up each of you a stone upon his shoulder, according to the number of the tribes of the people of Israel, that this may be a sign among you when your children ask in time to come, What do these stones mean to you? Then you shall tell them that the waters of Jordan were cut off before the ark of the covenant. Now let's let this live for a moment. The children of Israel had wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. They came to this uncrossable body of water, the river Jordan, and God miraculously showed up, reminiscent of what he had done to the Red Sea back in Egypt. At the end of the day... God says to Israel, set up stones on the west bank of the Jordan River, and when your children ask in time to come, what do these stones mean? You will say, oh, Johnny, you should have been there. We came to this river, and there was no way that we would ever cross it, and the priests stood in the river, and the water came up to their ankles and all of a sudden God showed up and he stopped that river Johnny the river bottom was dry I felt it in my toes God held the natural current of that river back and our, our entire nation 
who crossed the Jordan River on dry ground. Johnny, I believe in the true and living God. I was there. He did that for me. And in the process of Johnny looking at the stones and hearing the faith testimony of his parents, just like Eunice to Lois to Timothy in the New Testament, the faith, the reality of faith was to be passed on. That's God's plan and purpose for our parenting today. Now, I'd have you consider another negative example in the Old Testament. Oh, just a minute. Let me, one more thing I want to share it with you. It's interesting, the monuments, even in uh, Washington, D.C., engraved on a monument in Washington, D.C., are these words to the, in memory of World War II. December 7, 1941. President Roosevelt said, a date which will live in infamy, no matter how long it may take us to overcome this premeditated invasion, the American people in their righteous might will win the absolute victory. Actually, there are several monuments in Washington, D.C. Similar to this, it is interesting that none of them include the words of President Roosevelt saying, so help us. God. I guess they ran out of space or something. But one thing for sure, on all of our monuments, the monuments of your life and mine, may our children see God. It's the ultimate purpose of parenting. I want you to consider another parent in the Old Testament, Rebecca. Rebecca leaves us a legacy of child favoritism. Listen to Genesis 27. The, then Rebekah took the best garments of Esau, her older son, which were with her in the house, and put them on Jacob, her younger son. And she put the delicious food and the bread which she had prepared into the hand of her son, Jacob. In this family, Isaac loved Esau and Rebekah loved Jacob. And I wonder what favoritism does in a family like this. We'll look at verse 34. As soon as Esau heard the words of his father, he cried out with an exceeding great and bitter cry and said to his father, Bless me, even me also, O my father. Do you hear the bitter sound of Esau's voice? After the birthright transfer was final, Esau declared his broken heart. He felt violated, denied, overlooked, and Whenever there is favoritism in the home, someone is going to get hurt. That someone in this story was Esau. If you're a parent who is favoring one of your children, please hear the bitter cry of Esau, the neglected son. If you don't want to raise a child with an exceeding great and bitter cry, don't practice favoritism in your home. And notice the end of this life. In Genesis 27, verse 41, Esau hated Jacob because of the blessing which his father had blessed him. And Esau said to himself, I will kill my brother Jacob. Unbelievable response. Intense hatred. 
A hatred that would drive Esau to want to kill his flesh and blood brother. He was denied a basic family love and provision through favoritism. Our world is full of Esau's. Children who feel they have been denied their rightful blessing in their home. And they go through life with this passion. Many wonder where the angry rage of today's young people comes from. I want to say it's as old as Esau. Until we get back to meeting the fundamental needs of our children without favoritism, we are going to see growing numbers of children with the angry rage of Esau. I have the privilege of heading up a ministry at Bethel Church called Celebrate Recovery. If there's one thing I have learned as I have gotten into the lives of people who struggle with addictions, many of these people grew up in families where there was either neglect or favoritism. And they carry that pain down in their souls and seek to make decision at at an external level to somehow address the pain they feel internally. At our house, when we were raising children and they were young, I want to just mention this because some of you may be hearing this and you're hearing your children say to you, I'm not being treated as good as my brother. You love my sister more than me. And some of these parents, some of you this morning are hearing this and you're thinking, oh, I hope I'm not raising an Esau. Relax. At our house, we heard this line all the time. You love me more than my sister. Relax. You have a lifetime to prove your love and to and to prove your commitment to all of your children. Tell them what we told them. We love you just the same. Third negative example, Salome. You ever hear of Salome? She's the feminine form of Solomon. Really, I looked it up. I wanted you to know that. That's not significant at all, but I just want to pronounce it right. Salome. And she leaves us, interestingly, a legacy of selfish ambition. In Matthew 20, 21 and 2, she said to him, Say that these two sons of mine are to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left in your kingdom. And Jesus answered, You do not know what you're asking. To be seated at the right of a king was the most honorable place a guest could occupy. It signified the world's coveted attention. It was a place of glory and position and privilege. And what this text tells us about this mother is that she had some kind of a pipe dream that she wanted her children to live out. Salome was more concerned about her son's fulfillment of her plans and dreams and goals. I was talking to someone recently about one of my sons, 
And he said, now is this your successful son? I immediately interrupted him and said, both of my sons are successful. One of my sons is at the top of his game and one of the top financial planners of his company. My other son is in Campus Crusade Ministry. Which one did you mean? I intentionally did not direct either of my sons into ministry. I wanted my sons to experience what God had for them. And there are moments as parents that we need to take our hands off and say the ultimate purpose of this parenting thing is getting my children to experience the will of God for their lives. I didn't share this story last night, but it, it, it occurred to me after the message was over that I should tell about a moment that I had with my youngest daughter, Ginger. She had just graduated from Purdue University and needed a break from the intensity of uh, academics. So she came and stayed with us for a few months. And my ministry assistant had just uh, recently resigned. And so we, we put her in there for uh, several months. And one day after, I think, about six months of uh, working at uh, Emmanuel Church back in those days, Ginger came to me and she said, I'm going to go to China. I took a deep breath and I just asked one question. I said, um, do you think God is in this? And she said, you know, Dad, I really do. And so I, I took another deep breath and I looked at her and I said, then I think you should go. And she did. And she met the love of her life in China. He grew up in Ohio, but she met the love of her life. (laughs) And I thought to myself, for all the things that I did wrong as a father, at that moment, I was right on. Because God had a plan and a purpose for my daughter. And parents, teach your children to set their hope in God and release them to do what God has for them. Now, the last mother I would like to direct your attention to is Samson's mother. She's not named in Scripture, but um, she leaves us a legacy of ineffective discipline. Now, before we read the Samson uh, account in Judges 14, you need to understand a little bit about the history of Israel. Philistine held an unusual edge over Israel. The Philistines had learned to smelt iron, and uh, they had a great military advantage over the nation of Israel. But rather than marching over Israel as an obvious enemy would, the main weapon that the Philistines used was trade and intermarriage. If the Israelites wanted a plow or an axe, they had to go to the Philistines to get one. If they wanted to marry one of their sons and daughters, they had to get permission from the Philistines. And generally, the Philistines did not object. So gradually, the Philistines gained a stranglehold over Israel. Israel was not enslaved by an army and military superiority, but they were experiencing cultural seduction. 
And so into that setting, we read these words about Samson. He came up and told his father and mother, I saw one of the daughters of the Philistines at Timnath. Now get her for me as my wife. But his father and mother said to him, Is there not a woman among the daughters of your relatives or among all of the people that you must go to take a wife from the uncircumcised Philistines? But Samson said to his father, Get her for me. She is right in my eyes. The King James puts it, She pleaseth me well. Now, you do understand what's happening at this moment. God had a plan for this child, which was revealed back in Judges 13, verse 5. The child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb. The primary danger posed by the Philistines to the nation of Israel was assimilation. So God said, I'm going to address that problem through the birth of a child, Samson. Samson was to become the living embodiment of separation. So he made him a Nazarite. And so Samson moved along and he generally accepted the hair code. He didn't touch dead carcasses, well, only once. And he didn't drink strong drink, but tragically Samson did not develop the necessary heart change that is always needed along with outward rules. And so we, we have these, these, these rules, Judges 13 and verse 7, and Azurite was to drink no wine or strong drink. We also come along and see in verse 7 that he was to eat nothing unclean. God wanted Samson to adhere to the Hebrew dietary codes. He must only eat clean, kosher foods and comply with the Hebrew dietary code. And so now we see Samson in Judges 14 and verse 2. He sees one of the daughters of the Philistines of Timnath and he says, Now get her for me as my wife. The parents must have been shocked that Samson was veering this far out of the plan and purpose for his life. And what God needed at this moment in the life of Samson, he needed a parent to step up to the plate and have the courage to offer discipline for his son and to simply say no. I find one of the most difficult things to teach parents these days is discipline. I think it's complex because in a very real sense, every one of us are so different. Different things work for different parents. And every one of our children are so unique. But one thing that is always required in discipline is courage. Enough courage to look in the face of a child and say, no, God's plan and purpose for your life was to come into Israel and be a visible point of separation. And these parents lacked the courage that day. 
I don't know how this thing would have played out at the butler house. But I know that somehow Carrie and I would have mustered the courage to say no. God demands something a little more than this wimpy response. Did you catch it? Is there not a woman among the daughters, among all our people, that you must go and take a wife from the uncircumcised Philistines? It's kind of like saying, have you checked the youth group at Bethel lately, you know? (laughs) One thing that I know is necessary to be a good parent is courage. By the grace of God, do it gently, do it creatively. I don't care how you do it, but what was needed at this moment was a parent that would step up to the plate and say, no, that's contrary to God's plan for your life. I really believe that our culture is attacking the authority of parents. And I think if the church in the 21st century must do anything in relationship to mothers, we need to encourage them. I, 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 want, I say often as I teach a lot of parenting classes around here, I said, now, when you see me in the hallways and little Johnny is not at his very best, please don't run away from me. Don't hide. Please see my pom-poms, will you? I'm cheering for you. I care about you. I want to help you. And I think as the culture And as the world that we live in attacks the authority of parents, and especially mothers, let's be a church that is used of God to encourage parents. About 15 years ago, I was right in the middle of leading a building program in the church that I pastored. And I said to one of the many committees that I met with in this process, I, I said, the church will forgive us for many mistakes. One mistake they will never forgive us of is if we select the wrong chairs. Let's put it this way about the building program. The chairs are where the tire meets the road. You know what I mean? The physical anatomy of our people will intersect with our building program in the chairs. I see mothers as the chairs of a building program. They are the hands. You are the ones that touch our children. You are doing the most important work in all the world. And I say to you this morning, as the family pastor of this church, we love you, we care about you, and we want to do everything we can as a church to support you. God bless the mothers of Bethel Church on Mother's Day 2011. Let's pray.